Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. It's my hope that their stories will inspire you to live your own dreams. While writing the introduction for today's guest, Dan Chabel, I felt a bit overwhelmed. Introductions are supposed to be short, but Dan has accomplished so much that I had no idea how to fit it all in. So I'll just give you a taste of his background, and then we'll learn more as Dan and I speak. Here we go. Dan Chabel has written two New York Times bestselling books. He is a consultant and keynote speaker on the topics of career and his own millennial generation. Dan has founded successful companies, been featured in media outlets including The Today Show and People Magazine, and he runs a personal branding website that was ranked the number one job blog by CareerBuilder. Businessweek named Dan one of 20 entrepreneurs you should follow, and this is one of my favorites, Details Magazine named him one of five internet gurus that can make you rich. All this and more, and Dan's only 33. How has he done it? How does he do it? Let's find out now. Dan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Jessica. With all of my guests, I like to start at the very beginning. Where were you born? Newton, Massachusetts, 20 minutes outside of Boston in one of the three most populated Jewish areas in Massachusetts. Oh, that's interesting that you talk about it being a well-populated Jewish neighborhood. Did that have an effect on your upbringing? I think the biggest effect of my upbringing is that I was in a very safe area. I mean, very sheltered upbringing. So I didn't really travel much when I was uh, younger. And I was an only child as well. So I had like the hardcore Jewish mom that was overprotective. And so that kept me isolated from a lot of different experiences, both internally in my head and from just the pressures of my family and just being an only child. And when I was growing up, I was highly educated because Newton has some of the best schools. That gave me a real big advantage. Actually, I think growing up, high school was harder than college. When one school sets you up for such success later and makes almost the next experience easier, you're able to fully maximize it. And so I think that preparation almost freed up space and time in college so I could work on other things that actually had a much bigger impact into my long-term career, which were internships and leadership positions on campus. Did you have a sense when you were growing up and in this demanding high school that you wanted to be an entrepreneur when you graduated college? When did that come about? It's interesting because I was in a pitch meeting with a venture capitalist last year, and he immediately asked, did your parents influence you to be an entrepreneur? Tell me about your childhood. He didn't say, oh, what's your business idea? He cared more about my childhood than the actual idea. And that really was profound. And my response was this. It actually made me not want to be an entrepreneur. My dad had 100 employees. He was in the food and beverage industry, and they lied to him. They stole from him. It was a very tough environment, and I got to see all of that firsthand, and it turned me off to entrepreneurship. The reason why I got into entrepreneurship was because of blogging, because blogging to me was this testing ground to see what the possibilities were in life. So as I was writing, as I was using those blog posts, and I would write after work. I, when I graduated, I worked for EMC for three and a half years. What is EMC? EMC is a Fortune 200 technology company. Dell has recently acquired them as of last year, so it was like the biggest tech acquisition. And EMC basically has the data storage systems that keep like 
the Red Sox data. So like all the player stats, they have the systems and solutions to, to run those and store them. That's how they told us to pitch EMC to consumers or people who didn't know anything about the company. There was like 3,000 acronyms, 5,000 products. And part of the complexity of the company made me want to figure out something else in life as well. Because the, the thread that goes throughout my whole career is not getting an opportunity and then figuring out how to build a stronger profile or a personal brand to eventually get that opportunity. So here's a few examples. One is getting into college. I applied early decision and I was waitlisted into regular decision. So they told my parents, because I have helicopter parents, your kid is not special enough. But that's just one example. So I went back to the drawing board. I'm like, I got to get into this school. And that's been this mentality of the never give up perseverance, right? And so what happened was I you know, got straight A's my last semester. I wrote a, a letter to admissions officers. I interviewed on campus. Like I started to really uh, work much harder. I had an internship my senior year of high school. So I eventually got in. And another example is I wanted to get an internship at Reebok. And so sophomore year, I applied for it. And they basically told me that they only give internships to the sons and daughters of executives as like a thank you. What? But a year and a half later, I got an internship at Reebok because when I didn't get it, I said to myself, I'm getting an internship at this company no matter what. And what I did is I found people who knew people and got reference letters. Like I find my way in eventually. And then there's the book stories. Um, you know, the first book, I was rejected by 70 out of 70 agents. Actually, the last agent who rejected me jokingly said, oh, you're a Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankees fan. I'm not going to represent you. I never tell that part of it, but I always think it's kind of funny. Really? Yes. <laughs> and then two publishers rejected me, so I got the first book deal on my own. Let's get there in a second. Um, I want to back up a little bit because you said that there was – a point where you went from not wanting to be an entrepreneur and not wanting to follow in your father's footsteps to thinking that maybe that's what you want to do. And you mentioned that you started blogging and that's how it came about. So when did you start to blog and what were your first blog posts or blog websites? What were they all about? So the first blog was called Driven to Succeed. And so it was on Blogspot back in the day uh, when a lot of people were adopting it before WordPress really took off. October 4th, 2006. October 4th? That's October a specific 4th. date. Yes, you, I know all you, the dates. How? How do you keep that in your head? Because it's just it, things that are important and really had were big milestones in my life, I remember. Amazing. Okay, so about 10 years ago. Yes, 10 years ago, which is crazy. And so I wrote the blog because a lot of people my age were struggling to get jobs when they graduated. They were struggling to get internships. They weren't good at networking. And I had figured it out, but I had figured it out in a new way on how to use social media and leverage content and social networking services in order to get the attention of hiring managers. So here's what happened. I blogged 10 to 12 times a week outside of work. I'd come home and nights and weekends, it would be working on the blog and then eventually starting to work on other projects. So what happened with the blog in the early days is if you wrote articles, people would organically find you because there was a lot less competition. Now, the difference is if you write an article, no one's going to see it. So you have to work so much harder to stand out because there's a billion pieces of content being published and competing for someone's attention every second. So it's so much more competitive. But back then, it was, it was this whole situation where if you did work hard enough, if you did put out a lot of content, you could really build something and there was less competition and you could really make a name for yourself with zero dollars. Zero dollars. Right now, it's pay to play. 
Your Facebook posts, only about 3% of people who follow you will see it at a given time. So comparatively, about three to five years ago, that number was, I think it maxed out at like 15 to 20%. But now it's pay or play because Facebook wants to make money. So in order for an article to be seen by more of your network and more of their network, you have to sponsor a post. But going back to what we were saying is I realized something uh, that really changed my way of viewing the world back then. A lot of people are taught two things when they're in college. One is wait till your junior year to get an internship, which I thought was total bullshit because I got an internship sophomore year of high school. And the first internship is the hardest to get because everyone's looking at your previous internships that you don't have. They want right, that track record. Right. So the sooner you get that, the easier it is to get a, the best internship junior year of college. So that's one S- thing. Smart. Okay, so start start in high school. Is that what you're recommending? Exactly. Start in high school. Yeah, that's we, early. I, I, this is happening whether we like it or not. More companies are building their brand and connecting and recruiting high school students and even middle school students now. Middle school? And half of high school students in America about three years ago had an internship. Really? And about 70% of high school students want to volunteer or are currently volunteering. So the world's changed. Why? Because of access to technology, because of the pressures from the economy and their parents and the school system to get into college. How are you going to differentiate yourself now? Oh, if you have an internship, that will help you stand out. That's the world we come in. It's extremely competitive now to do almost anything. Um, we're lucky without, you know, we're years out of school because things are not going to get easier at all. So basically, that's what I learned. And then everyone was networking the wrong way. We were all told, hey, just pass out your resume, meet people, give them business cards. No, that is very ineffective. So the way I saw blogging when I was getting into it, when I was really learning about it, was using it to create networking opportunities, profiling people to establish new relationships. So since then, I mean, I've, I've, I'm now at about 1,750 interviews. So it's built my whole network. I- interviews, um, what, interviews through your blog? It used to be through, through the blog. Through, okay. The, and then it, the one that you started at age 23. I have like a multidimensional career. So I was starting my own blog. I was starting to write for other you know, magazines, blogs, et cetera. But then I was like starting companies. I had entrepreneurship. Then I was doing a book. And then I was doing a, launched a speaking career. So I've, I've launched multiple types of things, but they're all connected. Back then, it was, I want to be the millennial voice that's talking about personal branding. So I went all in with that. And so I every day, uh, two articles. I launched a magazine called Personal Branding Magazine on top of the blog. So I saw the blog in two ways. I saw the blog as a way to connect, and I saw the blog as a platform to launch other things on because the blog was the community. And when people commented on the blog, that the reason why my blog grew is because not only did I write a lot, but I committed myself to comment in every single blog that even mentioned personal branding. You Google personal branding, I own the first, and that was that was actually my own re, only real marketing strategy back then is own the first page if someone Googles personal branding. Like all the original publicity that, um, I, mean, not, I mean, that's a good part of why, but I mean, writing a lot and then writing for other sources, that all added up to me being able to take over the first page. But because that topic was becoming extremely popular globally, it set me up for the book. It set me up for everything that I wanted to do later, but it was still extremely hard. But back then, I put in so much effort. I mean, 110, 120 hours a week between the full-time job and the work done outside of that full-time job doing this, that I was able to break through and establish a name that I have, uh, have since leveraged and I will leverage for the rest of my life. So 
you know, it's the the number one piece of advice for young people, whether you're 16 or you're, you know, 24, is you want to do as much as you can as early in life as possible. And you won't even appreciate it until you're older. Like all of those nights when I used to see the sunrise, I mean, the long-term positive implications of that time spent and that sweat is, you can't even measure it. See the sunrise because you were up all night or because you were getting up early? You were up all night and then you went to a job, a day job? Exactly. After that? And the commute was terrible. It was, so the the research shows the longer you commute, the more depressed you are. And my commute (laughs) was an hour in traffic. It was awful driving. It's not like here where you take the subway in New York and you're at your stop in 20, 25 minutes. You know, you're driving and then even coming home when it's dark, it's just miserable. And then you're home and you couldn't deter me from writing these blog posts no matter what. Someone would have to die for me to not do these blog posts because I was so dedicated to what I was doing, right? I finally got that book deal after all the rejection. So you said that you were rejected, right? By by 70, I think you said. 70 out of, out of 70. 70. So I got out of ze- se- no representation. Right. The so end. then what do you mean by a book deal? Rejected by two publishers. And then the third publisher, Kaplan, was the one that signed me. And the reason why they said they signed me uh, was because I was the right person with the right idea at the right time. It wasn't because now to get signed, you have to already have sold tens of thousands of copies. Now in order to get signed, you have to have an email list of 50, 100,000. The rules are a little bit different now, but back then it was just, it was just you know good timing. What gave you the, the energy, the drive to be able to keep pitching agents 10, 20, 30, 50 rejections. What's your secret? I really felt like I was meant to do it. I really felt like I was the person who had to write the book. So the first book truly came from the most genuine place ever. And I think that's why it did extremely well. I think part of the original drive was I was made fun of a lot because I just didn't fit in anywhere. And so because because I, I had those type of struggles, I was like constantly, I got to prove myself. And so that that ended up manifesting into some of the work ethic, but I also get the work ethic from my grandfather and my father. I mean, incredibly hard work. My dad's 73 and he still works and he'll work till he's died. So I have that work forever type of DNA. So how do we get to starting a company? How do we get from so, the blog to starting a company? Yeah, so speaking was a great way. So th- there's two industries that run in parallel, the book industry and the speaking industry. So if your book does well, you'll get more speaking opportunities, and the speaking opportunities will sell more books. So they go hand in hand. They're best friends, right? Ah, okay. Well, the quickest way to book deal is to have an amazing speaking platform to speak for you know $30,000 every year, 10 times, 30 times. Then you get a book deal, right? Because they know that part of, part of the speech will include the books. Most people don't make a lot of money on books, but they make a lot of money on speaking to make up for books. So that's the relationship right there. And what happened was I spoke for free for three and a half years. Three and a half years? No representation, nothing. No one would represent me. And then this one girl who was sitting in my speech at my alma mater, Bentley. This is a great story. She ended <laughs> I'm excited. Up, she ended up graduating and working at this tech company. And then she hired me to speak, not for zero dollars, but for $6,500 in a limo. Victory! <laughs> Imagine paying your expenses and speaking for free for three and a half years, and then going from free to 6,500. Like, I felt like I robbed a bank. I almost like apologized <laughs> to them. I'm like, do you want this bad, is this happening? I wanted to do this for my whole life. I'm gonna be doing this till I'm dead. 
I know I'm going to be. This is what gets me excited. I'm still doing it. Six when years you say this, what do you mean? You this, mean everything, like anything along the lines of helping people achieve more career success, especially in a corporate setting. And my personal mission is helping our generation go from student to CEO. It's on my website. It's what I stand for. It's how I make decisions about projects that I attach myself to. Um, so that's my place in the world. That's That brings meaning to what I do. And now because I know that and because I know the value I can provide from a storytelling perspective and from a research perspective, and we can get into that, but um, I really want to focus on helping our generation succeed, but at the same time, helping corporations become better so that our generation can succeed. So I'm, think of me as the middleman between corporations and our generation, and I'm trying to make I'm trying to make it work. I love it. So uh, how is it working? And to that end, what do millennials need to know when they're going into a job? Sure. I think what I find most interesting now is the average tenure across all generations and age groups is 4.2 years. That number is uh, going down. It used to be 4.6. It used to be 5.5. Uh, for our generations, it's two years. Some people stay less than a year. 40% of people this year, regardless of age, are looking for a new job. No one's happy. Everyone's looking for the next best opportunity. You find this across various things, in dating, in everything. This is the mentality that people have now. And it's really because of technology. Technology has made people more accessible than ever before. And that's had positive implications as well as negative. And this is kind of the core, part of the core for the next book uh, is to really shine light on how technology has actually made us more dysfunctional. Uh, Despite some of the benefits that it's provided to us, it's actually caused us harm and made us a little bit less productive and has hurt human relationships, which people regardless of age still cherish the most. And people regardless of age want to work in a corporate office. They want in-person meetings despite their behavior. So what they want and how they behave is different. And it's what I've been studying. I've done 35 studies in about four and a half years. Studies of what? Research studies. I've surveyed about 66,000 students, entrepreneurs, employees of all age groups, uh, executives, you name it, uh, freelancers. So I have a very good pulse globally about what people are thinking, their workplace preferences. I was actually reading some of my old research today, and one of the things that you know I'm interested in is older generations think that men are better prepared and are better leaders in the workplace. Younger generations think women yeah. should be leaders in the workplace. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I like it. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I've been looking, I have so much data and I haven't even combed through it all. Wow. Our last survey was with Kronos, which is one of the top vendors in the HR space that we've been working with for, we're actually working on a third study with them Anyway, who is we? So basically there's one company that's Millennial Branding. This is another story. Okay, I I like these stories. (laughs) All right. And who's Millennial Branding? Millennial Branding is just me. Okay. That's, That's kind of my company that focuses on consulting, speaking, books, advertising, everything related to their business that I originally started. February 4th, 2015, I launched Workplace Trends. It was a collection of my all my primary data and secondary sources. Actually, now it's over 450 secondary sources, which shows you there's over 450 sources that publish information on the economy, workplace trends, um, employee lot. behavior, all of that. So it's a lot we're combing through. 
And so I created that site, launched it, and then within 10 months, it was acquired by a company called Future Workplace. It's an amazing story of how it happened. My friend's teacher at Babson is now one of my business partners. And then the other business partner I met in a CNBC segment. So how the whole acquisition happened is crazy. And it all happened within th- two, three weeks. Oh, when it's meant to be. So it's it meant to be, like for that, sure. Yeah. And and now, so, so things have been much better. It's, you know, I've had a little bit more stability. We've been able to build something more interesting. And I'm still doing what I enjoy doing. So I'm still doing that. So now it's the two companies working on the third book and, and other projects. But same mission um, and... Yeah, and just challenging myself, you know? I mean, I've done over 2,000 articles, 35 studies. I've interviewed 1,750 people. Um, But I do things with the intent that someday I might be able to leverage. I want a repository that's so strong that if I come up with an idea in five years, 10 years, I already have enough content to leverage to be able to start it. And then at the same time, I want the network so when I come up with ideas and I think of something, I can say, hey, these three people you know, can can do it. Like for instance, I'm gonna be in a Netflix documentary and I'm only in it because one person introduced me to another person which introduced me to another person. But if I didn't make different connections, that wouldn't have happened. And it's more and more I'm realizing, here's a good, another good example. So this one uh, book publisher came to me and she's like, will you endorse this book? I could have easily said no, but strategically, I'm like, well, you know, maybe in 50 years, what if I want them to publish uh, one of my books? You never know. But also when I did it, it created good karma, which resulted in a speaking engagement in Florida. It's really interesting. It goes back to the story that I, I was telling you about that one girl I was speaking for free to 30 people in my school. And and when she graduated and hired me, it changed my whole speaking career. And I didn't say this, but Instead of taking the 6,500, I gave 30% away to an agent so they would sign me because I knew that I would be in this industry for life. So I, I would much rather take a little bit of a hit and lose a few thousand dollars and leverage that. And now I'm in the best agency. So if I didn't get rep by them, it wouldn't create a strong enough perception to have a chance of getting rep by the other ones because the other agency now felt like they stole me from their competing agency. And now I'm in good hands and it's really ignited my my speaking career. That is brilliant. So I could have easily say 6,500 enjoy and that would have limited me. That would have been a short-term move. So I, I try my best to make as many long-term moves as possible. My dad's my dad's best piece of advice was stay at EMC until it makes sense. Until it, yeah, like I kept it was getting to a point in EMC where it's like, can I have Monday next Wednesday next Friday? You know, two weeks from now off because I I was getting hired. I was doing all these things like, you know, I'd be in like a conference room on CNN. I mean, it got nuts. And no exaggeration at all. And it was all over the place. So it was like, that was a signal that I needed to leave. But especially when you're on your own, you don't know how, you, it's hard to project how much money you're going to make because it's not consistent, especially in the speaking industry. You know, they hire you, they don't hire you. And now it's very competitive. But I, I realized that you stay with the company as long as you possibly can because it protects you and it gives you the best chance for success. You only do it when you absolutely know you have to leave. Our society, especially our generation, they're very impatient. They want instant gratification and they want the badge of honor uh, that 
that is the most socially acceptable and the one for this generation is entrepreneurship. Everyone wants to feel like they or consider themselves to be an entrepreneur because it's cool. So, so people are end. quick to yeah. quit their job and it, it is actually not a good play. That's all I'm saying. Um, so tell us a little bit about your most fascinating recent research study and what came out of it. So the, the study we just did is very interesting. We found that there's an employee burnout crisis in America right now. So what's happening is people are working longer hours and not making more money. People are making 10% less than they did 10 years ago. But the average work week, and this was a study by Gallup in 2014, is 47 hours a week. There's no 40-hour work week anymore. Even for hourly workers, it's 43 hours a week, which means most of them are getting overtime. And that overtime pay has increased to, you know, to their benefit because of Obama, but that could change. And so people are being burned out because they have to work longer hours, but they're not being incentivized. There's no compensation. So it's crushing them. And, uh, and it's actually interesting because I was doing a radio interview and people would call in and be like, yeah, that's affecting me. I'm feeling that. So that's what Americans are actually feeling right now. And companies are not hiring more employees. They're trying to squeeze out as much as they can from each employee. And this really happened after the recession. Companies started to hire slowly. The average time to hire an employee expanded by a whole week. And so they're hiring slow. They're, they're uh, not hiring as much. So the employees have to do more work with fewer resources. And so they're burning out. And, and it's caused upwards of 50% of all employee turnover, we found. So half the reason why an employee leaves is because they're burned out. If you're burned out, you're less productive, you're less engaged, you have less organizational commitment. That's my new thing is organizational commitment. And that's that's kind of a, you know my focus for the next three to five years is an organizational commitment because the number one challenge that companies have from a talent perspective this year is retention. Because the economy is, is doing better. The unemployment rate is about 4.6%. And that's down from 8.6% in 2009. And so because of that, people have more options, they're more optimistic. And thus, if another opportunity comes, they'll probably take it. And every time, especially for our generation, they have to replace one of us, it's at least $20,000 plus headaches and stress. Because when the employee is not there, that team of two or three has to do that work. So... That's why companies are going to be more competitive with compensation. Compensation's going up 2.9, predicted 2.9% this year. Oh, good. So companies understand that they have no choice but to pay a little bit more, and they're going to boost their employee benefits. Wow. So companies heed what Dan is saying. <laughs> Retention's important. Focus on that. Um, and this has been amazing. The entire interview has just been filled with incredible advice and insights. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to see what the next three to five years and beyond hold in store for you. Dan Chabelle, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> this is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.